Good morning, good evening, and good afternoon. Whenever and wherever you're listening, we just wanted to extend the warmest of welcomes. So kick back and relax as we continue through our sermon series. Well, friends, it is good to be with you. Uh, my name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're with us online, um, thanks for being here. I know some of you guys may be taking a peek through the window, checking this place out. I want to give you a personal invitation to come on into the room. This isn't that scary, a bunch of people, and uh, they're just as messed up as you, so it's good. Welcome to our faith community. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what messy people do, right? <clears throat> they clap when we say it. That's awesome. Um, hey, I wanted to follow up last week, and I'll catch everybody else up uh, if you weren't here, if you're new with us. Last week, I had mentioned how we really want to hone in on just a few really important things that don't just become information, but become things that we can use as some sort of transformative option in our life when it comes to like the things that we are dealing with. And so I specifically talked about two classes that we're going to be offering in April, um, and uh, a lot of you came up to me like, hey, was that just something you were talking about, or is that the real deal? Um, so it's real. Let me explain it to you a little bit. Um, <clears throat> how many of you guys remember, like, there was a, the culture kind of explained to us that we were going through the great resignation, right? Where everybody was resigning from something or shifting and going, I'm not sure I like that. Or like, is this what I want to do in my life? And everyone kind of took a pause and looked around and was trying to figure those things out. Um, I think that personally, we're in a phase of life where I'm seeing a lot of issues, which I would call the great separation. Uh, a lot of people are looking at relationships that have broke or are broken that they never imagined would have been here. Uh, more people than I ever imagined to talk to me that don't have a relationship with their kids or their grandkids or had a best friend, and now they don't have their best friend anymore, and they're not really sure what happened, and we're not really sure how to reconcile it. And so we want to step into that space because we think it's really, really important. And some of us, honestly, and I talked about this last week, some of us, our broken relationship actually had to do with something really silly, politics. Um, we don't talk about that here, but we're going to do a class. A couple of our board members went through this book, and we talked about it. It's called um, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk. It's a great title. Uh, Eugene Cho wrote it. Um, but this is a space maybe where you need to come to figure out how to get some tools of like, hey, how can we walk through this and live in the gray and still be in community and meet on the majors. So there's that class that's one that might be really helpful um, for you. And I'm talking to you. I'm not talking to the person sitting next to you. So this isn't an elbow thing situation. This is you. This is a you thing. Uh, the other class is simply about reconciliation. I, I think personally it's going to turn a little bit into a recovery group. Um, like, how do we do that? What does that look like? How do we get, like, the courage and strength to take steps in there? Um, and so there's that class out there as well. There's a couple other things out there. You can go check it out in the lobby. It's off to the left. We got information. Just grab a flyer and go and check that out. Um, we, we really think that's going to be important where we're not just going to gather information, but we're going to gather something, and it's kind of like a community. We're going to try to, like, how do we shift things? How do I fix things um, to what it's supposed to look like to reconcile? Okay, so to recap... If you're new with us or you're not new with us, we've been going through the book of Matthew. This is the first book in the New Testament of the Bible, written by a guy named Matthew, and it chronicles the life and teachings of Jesus. And so we've been taking it step by step, and by step by step, I literally mean verse by verse. Uh, it's called expository teaching, um, where we're walking through and looking at every word. We're trying to chew on it, and we're also trying to look at it from a theological standpoint, um, but also from a cultural standpoint of who, who were 
who was the audience? What was taking place there? What did that mean for them? And then take it here and say, now what can this mean for us, me? How can I apply this? What, what, what is what he's saying? Um, how does that speak to me in my life? And so we ended a couple weeks ago, we ended chapter 12, and it was not cut scene, whole new situation. Chapter 12 ended and Jesus was having a conversation in a house, much like this, with religious people and his disciples and a few other people that kind of could fit into the house. And it was an inside kind of conversation in chapter 12. The beginning of chapter 13 last week, we watched him then go outside of the house and he sits by the Sea of Galilee. I got to lead a trip uh, with a bunch of people to Israel uh, a couple of months ago. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee. I personally think this is actually the spot that this happened because there's a house. It's very familiar. Not far from this. It's beautiful. I'll show you more pictures as we go through. By the way, if you're interested in that, there's actually a flyer out there. We're going to have an informational meeting because we're going to take out another huge group of people with us on a pilgrimage. So he goes by the sea and large crowds gather there. And so he ends up getting in a boat uh, right here and pushes offshore just a little bit and then sits and then teaches to the crowd. And last week we talked about how they stood, like they were attentive, mentally, emotionally, like physically, actively listening. And Jesus does this totally new thing. He starts teaching in these weird things called parables that like have deeper meaning and, and it's all like twisted up and there's not quite understanding. And he's gonna teach now another parable today. And so I'm gonna hop right back in. We're in uh, chapter 13. This starts in verse 24 says this, <clears throat> Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds, sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. By the way, when something destructive appears in your life, it's been planted there for a little while. Like there's a difference between the time when it was deposited in the soil and the time that actually showed up in your life. <laughs> Today's going to be good. Here we go. The owner, the owner's servants came and said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did these weeds come from? Like I thought you raised your kids right. I thought you went to church. I thought you prayed. An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. I think for this, what I've noticed is that as my devotion to Jesus grows, the things that distract me or pull me away um, to this pure devotion and simple childlike grace of God grows bigger. And Jesus here is using a parable so he can use earthly symbols to convey this spiritual message. He said, it's like if a man planted wheat and then someone else planted weeds Notice I'm pronouncing weeds. <laughs> he said, I want you to know that both grow together, which is symbolic of his ministry because as his ministry increased, so did the opposition. 
And this parable is trying to say like, hey, I want you to think about the way you think about God. I want you to think about the way you think about salvation. I want you to think about the way you think about yourself. And I'm gonna tell you these stories that are gonna like crack open to subvert your brain, to reshuffle the furniture, how you think about everything. And that's how I want these stories to work. But often we find ourselves going like, I don't understand. Like, I don't get it. This doesn't make sense. I'm so confused. Like, what the what? What? In life, sometimes seems like an enigma wrapped in a riddle, stuffed inside a cryptogram, sealed with another riddle, just looking for an epiphany. I know, that's what exactly it feels like. Really weird. Like, we sit there and say, like, why was that allowed? What are you trying to say? What's going on here? Why doesn't any of this make sense? And no wonder we find ourselves perplexed because in the kingdom of God, down is the new up. Like two plus two rarely equals four. And perhaps confusion and doubt and uncertainty or curiosity, but something drives the disciples to ask a question that we all wonder deep down inside, which is this. Why do you speak to them in parables, Jesus? This was the question that we saw last week when Jesus first started talking in parables. Even the disciples were like, why are you doing this? This secret cryptic thing. And what we learn is they're just not these little cute stories. They're actually earthly stories with heavenly meaning. They have theological intent and they're supposed to reshuffle our entire life. They're actually in literally revolutionary stories. They're supposed to like completely upend your life so that when you woke out of here, you're going to be like, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I thought I knew who God was. I thought I knew what sexuality was for. I thought I knew what money was for. I thought I understood my purpose. But Jesus, through these stories, has upended all of that. Like how I actually think about the God of the universe. Like how I function in the world. Like the way that I act, the way that I treat people. Get this, the way that I treat myself. That's how these stories work. They change the way you think, what you do, right? How many of you guys watched the movie Jaws, right? Yeah. So the next time I went to the ocean after I watched Jaws, <laughs> my buddy's like, come on out here. And I was like, <laughs> right? I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to go in the water with you right now. And then like the next time I was in my swimming pool, for some reason, someone put a shark in there in my brain. Right? You guys, I know you guys have done that. Right? But my experience of that story changed how I functioned in the world. That's what Jesus is trying to do. He wants to like upend your life. He wants you to rethink about everything. In light of this story, I want to change the way you think. I mean, friends, like think about the way you function throughout your week. Like, why do you spend money the way that you do? Why do you relate to your spouse the way you do? Why do you relate to your friends the way you do? Why do you have the sins you have? And this whole chapter in chapter 13 is a revolutionary manifesto that is trying to upend the empires of the world, including the Western Christian empires of today. And the gift of the parable is that it invites us to dig deeper. We get to read the parable, and then we allow the parable to read us. See, parables ask us to use... Um, our hearts and our minds and our, our souls or our friends along with this childlike dependence on God to decipher. What is this? Who am I? Where do I fit? 
And then real understanding comes, not when we get the story, but when the story gets us. Parables aren't just told, they are lived. The mysteries, friends of God, is they have a way of bursting forth in the midst of our nine to five and our five to nine in unpredictable ways. But the question is, will we recognize them? Will we cry out to God for understanding for ourselves and others? Will we develop ears that strain to hear God's voice and eyes that squint for his presence? I would confess that I am blind and deaf. Because thousands of years ago, the disciples needed Jesus to unlock the parables. And thousands of years later, I still need Jesus to unlock parables of Scripture and everyday life. So as we continue chapter 13 today, may we have ears to hear. Not just hear, but hear. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. You and I don't really understand actually this phrase because we're 21st century Americans who don't understand what Jesus means when he says the kingdom of heaven because we're outside of the culture because like we aren't inside the culture and he's saying something extremely powerful if you're an insider. And and this is where context means everything. See, there was these expectations um, that the Jews had about this specific time and day would come where all of the brokenness of the world, all of the pain, all of the tragedy, all of the sickness, all of the disease, all of the stuff that's like in our life, the awfulness, the evil, the sin, the darkness in our world, you and I have to understand that that to a Jew, that that there was, was gonna be a day that God is going to reverse all of it. That God's going to show up and do something. He's going to bring about a renewal. And when that happens, when forgiveness of sins happens and joy and beauty, all the sin goes away, all the sickness goes away, all the pain goes away. When all of that happens, here's the phrase they would use to talk about it. The kingdom of heaven. So now Jesus shows up and he says, I'm the climax to that story. I'm bringing the kingdom. You know all that stuff that you were waiting for? All the brokenness that you wanted to be taken care of? All the sin that would be dealt with? All of it is starting to unfold in my life, my ministry. And I'm bringing the kingdom. And so the call is to embrace me. See, the kingdom of heaven wasn't just about, I got my sins forgiven. It was about like the sphere, the reign, the rule, the empire of God has come from the heavens and has broken into the present world so much that you and I actually can experience it. It's it's about way more than getting your sins forgiven. It's about the kingdom of heaven dropping into your life right now with the power to change your addictions. And some of you are sitting here and you're addicted to all kinds of different things. And the kingdom of heaven is dropping in this beautiful message of hope for every single person in this room that whatever that thing is that has you, the sin that so easily entangles you that you are able to walk away from those addictions and able to walk away from those lifestyles. That's the point. 
that you would come under the reign and the rule of God and by his spirit, literally like the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead can now empower you, friends, get this, can change you. Like I want to do something different that changes our neighbor's lives, like our lives. Oh, I want to see our kids. I want to see people in fire, on fire, empowered by the spirit of God, which comes to those who is a part of his kingdom. So now listen, here's, here's the point. And this is where this parable is actually going. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, everybody gets weeds. His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the weeds sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered. Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. Here's the first thing we got to understand. And I think as um, like West Coasters, like we got to embrace this. He says that there is an enemy and he says that there are weeds among the wheat. So here's what we got to understand. I think sometimes we wear like these rose-colored glasses because we live on the West Coast and there's been a lot of influence from Eastern philosophy where there's like a lot of religion. Like Buddhism doesn't even acknowledge this. Here's what I love about biblical Christianity is that it acknowledges evil. It acknowledges sin. It acknowledges the reality of the enemy in which Judaism and Christianity is Satan or the devil. It just coldly looks at the facts and says, hey, everybody, there's evil in the world. But if you look at like Buddhism or like some forms of Hinduism that believe in like Maya, they think that evil is just an illusion, that bad things happen to you is just an illusion. I remember walking into a a coffee shop one day a few years ago, and there was this guy there who's kind of like this guru, this local guru who spit like this new age philosophy to people in the coffee shop. And he was sitting there And there was kind of like this group around him and he started to wax eloquently and uh, they all started to look at him and he was like, hey, you guys know that I got divorced from my wife and that we're going through a bunch of things. But you know what the reality is? If I pretend that those awful things that I'm feeling right now, isolation and loneliness in terms, if I admit that they're happening to me, then I'm gonna feel them. But... If I say they're not true, that they're not really happening to me, then I won't feel them. And then he said, because the reality is this. And this whole like, group of people are leaning in like, oh, tell us the big thing. Like unlock the universe, right? And he said this, I am everything and I am nothing. And they were all like, whoa, that's so deep. And I was like, I need more coffee. Like, <laughs> The biblical story does not go, the root of evil is an illusion, like bad things that happen aren't real. No, it starkly looks at the reality of life and is like, there's things that's going to happen in your life, like the cancer that you're going through, the divorce, the death of a loved one, whatever it is. Here's what he just said to you. It's real. Friends, there's weeds in life. There's stuff that comes up. And the beautiful part about biblical theology is it says it's happening to you. 
And this isn't something you can get away with pretending like. It's just not happening. You know, sometimes I've actually realized this, you know, that old saying of like, time heals wounds. No, that's nonsense. That's just us acting like it's not real. We got to look at weeds, realize that they're there. I know people who won't go visit people in the hospital because they go in the hospital and pray for their cancer is to like acknowledge and say something that actually exists. And they say that they're not supposed to acknowledge it. And what Jesus said is that weeds exist. And the call of the Christian is to acknowledge that weeds are there. And of course, fight them. Fight against evil. Pray on your knees, just like God. Heal, plead, I'll fast, I'll pray. I like want healing, come against this. But the Bible would say that the theology that actually ignores the awfulness is naive and living in the dark. So he says evil exists. Secondly, I mean, it would be silly of us. Look at what these guys do. They think they know how to deal with evil. They're like weeds. They think they know how to deal with the awfulness of the world as if they can kind of like take control of it. By the way, is, that's exactly what all of us do in our lives, right? We just want to like wrestle control from God and show him how to like run things, whether, whether it's in your own life or whether it's in somebody else's life. The owner of the servants, the owner's servants came to him and said, sir, didn't you sow good seeds in your field? Where did the seeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, do you want us to go pull them up? Have you ever been in a position where you're like, hey, God, I don't think you should do it this way. Like, I got a better idea from you. Like, master, let me go deal with the evil. This is my job. I'm very good at this. I'm a horticulturist, right? I know way better. Like, I know what to do. I know exactly what to do when my life starts falling apart. I'm not going to involve you. Thank you very much. Like, I'm, I have pride in this. I'm, I'm going to grasp this. I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to apply more mind power, more time, more energy. And some of you friends, to be honest, are just exhausted trying to fix your marriage, trying to fix your kids, trying to fix your money problems, trying to fix your sickness, trying to fix your mom, trying to fix your neighbor. Some of you guys got mom issues. <laughs> Trying to fix everybody at work, right? You're working because you know what to do. You know better. And the one thing you're not doing is going, master, actually, I don't have a good plan. Instead, it's, I got an idea. Why don't I go take up the weeds? He says, no. Because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And God on any day knows way better than you, me. You can try to wrestle things away from him. You can try to control. It says, let both grow together. There's both. Look at somebody next to you and say both. There you go. We just got Baptist. That was fun. Uh, One of my favorite books uh, growing up as a kid was Alexander's Terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Anybody else read this book? Yeah, show of hands. A couple of you guys. If you remember, Alexander wakes up with gum in his hair, gets in trouble for fighting with his brothers, finds out he has a cavity, is served lima beans for dinner, and is stuck wearing his railroad pajamas to bed. An overall, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And his solution of course, is to move to Australia. 
He heard that term, good day, mate. Oh, it's a good day there all the time. Not a bad one. Until his mom then reminds him that, hey, some days are just like this. Some days bad things happen, even in Australia. I want to tell you, friends, if you're in a place like that right now, I want to stop for a moment and assure you, you are not alone in your no good, very bad, terrible, awful day. There are stories upon stories of pain and suffering in the Bible. I have my own stories of pain and suffering. I know this room is filled with them. You are not the first. If you're in a bad day season, you are not the first, nor will you be the last to wonder this. Where is God in all of this? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Why do we have both? Why can't we pull the weeds now? It's literally one of the hardest questions. And it's not because it's just an intellectual question. It's because it impacts us personally through like our own pain and the pain of the people that we love dearly. And sometimes we ask this question because we can't make sense of the evil that we see in our world. Like day after day, we hear stories of vulnerable being exploited. The innocent are victimized and blameless are suffering. And we feel this question like it's raw, it's tender, like an exposed nerve. And so navigating it isn't easy. So let me tell you what I'm not going to do with the rest of our time today. We're not going to solve the issue of pain and suffering. I won't insult you by pretending it's simple. We're not going to minimize pain and suffering by providing a pleatitude like everything happens for a reason. And I'm not going to tell you that your situation will get better if you just have enough faith. Because, well, like, it's just not how our God works. Instead... What we are going to do today is invite everyone to wrestle with this question, to enter into the conversation and have an honest, open conversation. I can't think of a better way and a better place to look than Habakkuk. Now, I'm guessing most of you just went, (laughs) Habakkuk is a Bible character we don't hear a lot about. So let me just take a minute to introduce him to you. He Uh, Habakkuk was a 7th century prophet. He was living in the final decades before Israel's southern kingdom was destroyed by Babylon. This was a a time of injustice. Idolatry was rampant in Israel. But unlike other prophets in the Bible, Habakkuk doesn't uh, call Israel to repent. Instead, his words were addressed to God. In the book of Habakkuk, Um, documents his own personal struggle to believe God is good, even when there's so much pain and suffering in the world around him. And his short book starts with these desperate words. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. Violence is everywhere. I cry, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all of this misery wherever I look? I see destruction and violence. Sound familiar? Any of these questions we still ask today, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Why are you allowing stuff to continue to happen, suffering to continue? Why don't you care about all this pain? Why? And these are hard and difficult questions to ask. And to be honest, they're exasperated by the times that we live in. Many of us ask them all the time. We don't understand how God can allow so much pain and suffering. However, 
Let's step back from the biblical text for a minute and wrestle with some of the reasons that we actually ask these questions. Obviously, we don't like pain and suffering, but sometimes there's something else at play. Can we for a moment consider the cultural lies that we've begun to absorb that make it even harder for us to deal with pain and suffering that we experience in the world? So lie number one. The goal of life is to be happy. No weeds. For example, that example, our, our, our culture teaches us that the ultimate goal, that the meaning of life, that, that is happiness. Like literally every day we are bombarded with commercials and social media posts that we deserve to be happy in the next car, the next iPhone, the next relationship, the next vacation is all we need to get there. Our own declaration of independence states the pursuit of happiness is one of our unalienable rights. I mean, think about that. We value happiness so much that striving towards it is a legal right in this country. But believing that the goal of life is to be happy is dangerous. Why? Because the meaning of life, if it's happiness, then any experience of suffering destroys our life's meaning. Like pain and suffering and stark opposition to happiness is therefore like our culture's suffering can have no meaning. It can only be bad all of the time. Uh, the author, author and professor, his name's Tim Keller, he writes this, in the secular view, suffering is never seen as a meaningful part of life, but only as an interruption. Is it any surprise that we have difficulty dealing with pain and suffering when we can see it only as something that threatens our happiness? Lie number two. If I do good, I'll be rewarded. If I do bad, I'll be punished. The second lie that we've absorbed is the lie of karma. And if we're honest, I think secretly or not so secretly, we all want to believe in karma. Like we want to believe life works in a straightforward, predictable way. If I do good, I'll be rewarded. If I do bad, I'll be punished. I came across this little quip the other day. Welcome to the karma cafe. There's no menus. You get served what you deserve, right? <laughs> You ever said that one? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit, right? It's this idea of karma, like it infers uh, that life is fair. Let's define that word. <laughs> but biblical theology doesn't connect pain and suffering with the morality of people. It's both. It's both. It's wheat and weeds. Good circumstances don't mean that God is pleased with you any more than pain and suffering can be construed that as, as punishments for wrongdoing. We, we can go through life and check all the boxes to please God. We, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I tithe, I volunteer, but none of that guarantees that life's not going to be hard. Our dog still might run away. Our marriage might still fall apart. Our kids still might get mixed up in the wrong crowd. We might still get sick. And the word of God profoundly, realistically explains this and tells us that suffering is inevitable. Nobody escapes it. Everyone experiences it. And the scriptures are extremely matter of fact about the reality that the world is full of pain. So life isn't fair. Life is filled with misery and suffering and is inevitable. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> right? It totally seems like this downer, but then in John, this book of John, it's in the New Testament too. 
In John 16, 33, Jesus comes along and while he acknowledges our reality, but then he reminds us of this beautiful truth. He says, in this world, you will continue to experience difficulties, weeds. Then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Karma says, you don't get what you deserve. You're going to get what you deserve. Jesus says, this is going to be hard. Take a deep breath. I got this. I got you. Lie number three. I have to be okay now. I am blown away by how Amazon can deliver a TV or anything to my front door just hours after I click buy, right? But what have we done? We have grown to expect that, right? (laughs) Why isn't it here tomorrow? (laughs) Why isn't it here by 10 o'clock? Right? We expect fast, quick. And that's great for a TV or something else, but that's not so practical when it comes to broken bones or broken hearts. When we approach pain and suffering with like the suck it up buttercup, rub some dirt on it attitude, we fail to acknowledge the long, slow process of healing and restoration. Healing from pain and suffering doesn't happen quickly, friends, not with broken bones and broken hearts, not with senseless crimes or systematic injustices. And it is okay to not be okay right now. It can be both. It's okay not to be okay. But we remember in this present day, Jesus, he's okay. We can lament the pain. We can cry over suffering. And it may take like a really long time. But don't think for a moment that God has abandoned you. The lies that we've absorbed from our culture They make trials and tragedies we face even harder to navigate. And oftentimes it's because we've created this God that doesn't even exist. Yet when we come to grasp the the inevitability of life's challenges, we can still find ourselves like echoing the servants and the questions. And so with Habakkuk's questions, God, why aren't you answering my prayers Why are you allowing suffering to continue? Why don't you see all this pain? Do you see the weeds? And like Habakkuk, I struggle to answer those questions. Paul, he's an apostle. He wrote a lot of letters in the New Testament. He had this thing called a thorn that he kept trying to weed out. He actually asked God three times, will you please take this away from me? And and now if you ever ask God to take something away, that's fine. But if he doesn't, you might need to leave it alone. And here's why you can leave it alone. Because the presence of weeds cannot cancel out the power of the wheat. What's supposed to grow will grow. Leave it alone for a little bit and see what happens. See if it actually becomes the fruit. You know, like this failure you're processing right now, or you started this thing or the business, you did a thing, you took a step and then you made a mess of it. See if that might be the seed of something that becomes something that people will celebrate in the future. That's the beautiful pearl that was created out of what? An annoyance. Paul, Paul actually finally came to a point where he said, I learned to thank God for my thorn. 
I learned to thank him for the things that he is using that I did not choose for myself, the things that he is using that tormented me at one time, but the tormentor was my mentor that transformed me into who I needed to be so that I would rely on the grace of God. In my weakness, he was strength. Friends, it is both. Let me ask you for a moment that we set aside the why question, and instead we ask the where. The where question. Where is God in pain and suffering? Can we find God in the darkest moments? Can we discover him in our deepest despair? And the best place to look for God, friends, is in the middle of our pain. It's to look to Jesus because it's Jesus we find a God who suffered. God didn't come to earth in person and Jesus to just sit on a throne. He came to hang on a cross. Jesus came to rescue the world from what had become thoroughly corrupted by evil and sin. He refused to abandon us to the forces of darkness that sought to separate us from him. God came for us and then he suffered for it. And I want to tell you, I want you to hear this, that Jesus knows what it's like to endure pain. And the truth is, he was actually profoundly shaken by it. You see, in the book of Mark, in the garden at the night of his arrest, he was deeply distressed and troubled. His soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You've been there? His stress in Luke, his stress was so overwhelming that he literally shed drops of blood showing all of the signs of being in physical shock. Also in Luke, he begged the father to save him from what was about to happen. He wanted to escape. In Matthew, we see on the cross, he cried out in despair. He felt abandoned. He experienced pain of the separation from the Father. So in Jesus, the suffering Savior, we discover this, that the goal of life is not earthly happiness, that even the best of the good suffer. And yes, that it is even okay for God to not be okay because he had a very not okay day. So eventually you can be okay. Jesus knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, grief, torture, and pain. And he didn't numb himself to it. He didn't smile and say, everything happens for a reason. He experienced it. He lived it. And when we search for God in the middle of our pain and suffering, who we find is Jesus. We find a God who understands our pain. We find a God who identifies with our suffering. And while Jesus' suffering doesn't answer the question, why does God allow pain and suffering? It does tell us what the answer is not. It can't be that Jesus doesn't love us. And it can't be that Jesus doesn't care. Again, Tim Keller writes, it can't be that God is so indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously, friends, that he was willing to take it on himself. I don't have an easy answer for you today. When it comes to the question of pain and suffering, I don't have an easy answer. But I do know this. 
Jesus understands your pain. He identifies with your suffering. And I believe that he wants you to find comfort in him. So come to him. Bring it to him. Bring him your sorrow. Bring him your stress. Bring him your pain. Bring him your despair. And turn to him because he understands. When Habakkuk surveyed all the pain and the suffering around him, he finally came to this conclusion that the only way to face it was with God. He writes this. He says, look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by the faithfulness to God. Friends, stay faithful to God. Habakkuk urges, despite all of the things that you are enduring, remain close to him. And when you do, that's your best way forward. I have known people who have walked through the depth of pain and suffering that most of us cannot even fathom, and they would say the same. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, he said, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the weeds and bring it into my barn. We keep waiting, friends, for this day when everything in our life will be stable and all of our relationships will be harmonious. And God's saying this, I need you to learn how to celebrate the wheat even while you are looking at the weeds. This morning, I need you to celebrate even the wheat while the weeds are all up in your face. God doesn't do everything that happens to me. God doesn't do everything that happens to you, but he uses everything that happens to you. He will use and redeem any story that is happening to you right now. There is nothing that is happening in your life that will not pass through the hand of God by the time this is all said and done. So stop trying to pluck this stuff out yourself. It is way above your pay grade. Don't go around trying to do a self-improvement project without God's help, friends. There will be an end. And there will be an ultimate healing and judgment. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. That's up to the God of the harvest. He will unbind it all. He will cut it off. He will burn it. He will bring it in into the barn. And you still have time to choose through free will what your destiny looks like because he already chose you and he already chose that you are worth it. You want to know why, friends? Because there's nothing that our God can't do. There's nothing that our God can't do. Aaron, there's nothing that our God can't do. Why don't you stand and declare that? There is nothing that our God can't do. Let's see it out right here. And this concludes this week's podcast. We hope you've enjoyed spending some time with us. And if you haven't already, like and subscribe to our YouTube and find us on Instagram at NGATECF. See you next week.